Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today and really excited to uh, be together and to jump into the book of Mark. Um, if there are any parents who would like kids up through fifth grade to go to some age-specific teaching now, we call that Gospel Project that's offered. So feel free to walk them out or just send them out to the back and somebody will help them uh, get going. Um, everybody else, you could turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the second book in the New Testament, the book of Mark. And as we often do when we start uh, a new book in the Bible, we purchase some of these scripture journals. It says the gospel according to Mark, and then it's got on the inside, half is the text and half is some space for notes. So there are copies of those in the back if anyone would like to purchase one of those just to recoup the cost. They're $5. So feel free to get one of those sometime today while you're here. They're on the uh, far left, right hand, my right hand side of the coffee table, and uh, I'd love to, coffee bar. I'd love to give one away if somebody would like to use it. Anyone interested in that? Come on, I saw you first, Josiah. Come on up. Um, would you help me? Thank you. Stinks to give it away to somebody else, doesn't it? But it's a godly thing to do. Good job. All right. Well, today we're going to begin a, a thrilling journey, which as Tad prayed, will, uh, Lord willing, occupy the rest of our Sunday morning gatherings this year, except for the very last one, which will be Christmas Day. Uh, this journey through uh, the second book in the Bible is the Gospel of Mark. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, underneath the seat in front of you, there are some blue ones. And on page uh, 488 in those chair Bibles, you'll find Mark. Please feel free to take that with you, of course, if you don't have a Bible of your own. That way you can read ahead in the coming weeks. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is regarded by many as the earliest historical account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And as such, that makes it very significant. A few days ago, I googled, who is Jesus? And I got a dizzying 1,670,000,000 hits. Thankfully, we need not look to Google for this one, because we have something far better. We have four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these four first century witnesses are all based on either the person himself writing was an eyewitness or the person writing wrote the account of an eyewitness. There is no debate that Jesus was and is a towering figure in human history. Perhaps we might say he was even the most famous person who's ever lived. But is he more than that? Well, the book of Mark is going to tell us. He's going to help us to see that uh, answers to questions like, is Jesus a lunatic or is he Lord? Should he be rejected or should he be worshipped? Should he be scoffed at intensely or surrendered to completely? Well, Mark is going to answer these questions for us and many, many, many more. Our hope and prayer for 2022 is that if you don't know Jesus at this point in your life, you would come to know Him through this journey that we're calling a year through Mark. And if you know Him already, that you would grow in your uh, wonder and admiration, your love and your obedience to this one called Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice if you look at the title of 
your uh, page, in your copy of the Scriptures, it probably says the gospel according to Mark. Well, that's an amazing story in and of itself. The book is named after its author, somebody called John Mark, a man who had a bit of a rocky start. The book of Acts records that Mark accompanied accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their very first missionary journey. But for some unknown and apparently worldly reason, John Mark decided to go home before the missionary journey was over. Paul was so perturbed that when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the next missionary journey, Paul essentially threw a fit and he refused. He said, John Mark can't go. He's not welcome. He bailed on us last time. He's probably going to bail on us again. And so sharp was the disagreement between these two friends, Paul and Barnabas, that they ended up parting ways. Paul took Silas with him and went one direction. Barnabas took Mark with him and went another direction. It's a sad reality that disagreements sometimes cause Christians to part ways, but God can bring them back. And that's what happened in this case. Perhaps you know the story. The details of exactly how Paul and Mark reconciled aren't given to us in Scripture, but the fruit of the fact that they did is. Years later, We know through the rest of the New Testament that Paul did take John Mark back. He forgave him and even included him in future ministry. In fact, Mark became one of Paul's most helpful aides when he was in prison in Rome, and he became his delegate to Asia Minor. The irony is palpable. Paul couldn't go because he was locked up, and so he sent this one in his place who he refused to let go with him previously. And in Paul's final letter, after he had sent John Mark away to do mission, he asked for him back because he needed his comfort and help. In 2 Timothy, he calls him very useful for ministry. But that's not all God did with Mark. Mark also knew Peter. In fact, the first known reference to John Mark outside of the Bible is a very early account written in the late first century, early second century by a guy named Papias. He records what was apparently common knowledge, that Mark recorded Peter's preaching and intimate firsthand accounts with the life of Jesus, and those became known as the Gospel of Mark. Now, before we move on, would you let that sink in for a moment? God saw fit to take a missionary dropout to record the very earliest testimony of Jesus Christ. That that background reveals so much about what we'll find in the content and the effect of the writing itself. You see, getting to know Jesus will change you. Getting to know Jesus isn't simply about 
uh, learning some facts or becoming a more knowledgeable person. Getting to know Jesus is getting to know the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth and can take our very worst messes and turn us into something useful for Him. People who know Jesus are people who are well accustomed to having second, third, fourth, and fifth undeserved chances, just like John Mark got. And they are people who've become and are even becoming more the kind of people who love and forgive each other, even as we've been loved and forgiven. Amen? If you, like me, are aware of your failures to be and to do what God requires, then take it from Mark. God is a God who forgives, and God is a God who can use you despite whatever you've walked away from in the past. Now, with Mark's own changed life in mind, would you hear with me these opening words from what is essentially the introduction or the prologue to his gospel? Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather uh, belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. He would fit in in downtown Tempe, wouldn't he? Uh, Verse 7, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with, with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came down from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he had come up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The voice coming from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. At both the beginning and end of this introduction, you may have noticed there's a word repeated multiple times. That word is the word gospel. It's in verse 1 and then again in verses 14 and 15. John seems to have deliberately in his introduction bookended 
and thereby encapsulated what this entire book is going to be about. This book is a book about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. That is, Mark set out having experienced it firsthand himself. He set out to record the gospel of the ultimate deliverance of God's people. And he takes great pains to tell us especially that this good news is the good news about somebody named Jesus. Now, many of you have already come to know uh, Jesus Christ. Many of you have already read through Mark. Some of you many, many, many times. But our hope and prayer is this year that you would learn new things about Jesus, that you would be reminded of things about Him you've forgotten, and especially perhaps that connections across the whole Bible would begin to lock in place in new ways, such that you would walk with Him more intimately this year. For others, there will be things uh, perhaps that you hear about Jesus for the very first time, and No doubt, by God's grace, there will be people come to know Him, be saved this year as you take what you hear, what you read, and share with others. Through Jesus, there is salvation for all who turn to Him. There is no more important message we could ever hear. Jesus, Mark declares in His opening sentence, is the Christ. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the rescuer. He's the divine deliverer. He's the redeemer. And furthermore, Mark very deliberately sets the stage for the whole drama of redemption he's going to write about in the introduction by saying, we could encapsulate it this way, the good news of the ultimate deliverance of God's people, not the many deliverances which are throughout the Old Testament, But the ultimate one was foretold by the Old Testament, verses 2 and 3 tell us that, were anticipated by John the Baptist, verses 4 through 8 describe that, and then are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, verses 9 through 15 begin to unfold that for us. That's essentially what happens in this passage. Now, if you are new to Mark or new to the Bible, some of that just sounds like blah, blah, blah. But don't uh, fret or stress or feel out of place because the function most of the time, and definitely this is true in Mark, the function of an introduction in a book in the Bible is not to say, here's everything you ought to already know, but rather Here's what we're going to spend the whole book learning about together. And so wherever you are in your present knowledge of Jesus, Mark is going to help you take the next step over the next uh, 50 weeks. Verses 1 through 15, you see, are in seed form what the rest of Mark will flower and grow in glorious detail. Now, friends... Uh, We desperately need some good news today. Bad news abounds. It's everywhere. Nearly two years after COVID exploded in the United States, it is still 
ravaging lives and affecting the entire planet. Who, who would have thought two years ago we'd still be where we are now? Anxiety, isolation, rebellion, selfishness, uncertainty, inflation, pride, illnesses. These seem to be the world's unwanted but ever-present companions. Maybe over 2021, some of these things came knocking on your front door. And of course, our greatest need always is to be reconciled to God, under whose wrath we exist unless we repent. Yet in this world full of bad news, Mark brings the very best news, the news that gets us through all the bad news, the news that is sufficient, whether we live another day and things get better, or we live another two decades and things only continue to get worse. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has brought ultimate deliverance for all God's people. And that good news is enough. Now, in our remaining time together this morning, I want to briefly just walk you through these sections that are outlined here on the screen and try to show you in an introductory way how this good news is sufficient and how it's described in this text in order to help us get set up in a way that we can spend the rest of the year with Mark. And so consider with me first how this good news is foretold in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, the Bible is essentially organized in two halves, although the first half is roughly two-thirds in terms of the amount of material. But the Old Testament is that part of the Bible that is Genesis through Malachi, that was written before Jesus came to earth. And in the Old Testament, we are told, essentially, Jesus is going to come to address the mess that we have made. This story is told over and over and over in lots of different ways. And then sprinkled throughout the second half, the Matthew through Revelation, are the, the fulfillment of everything we're told from the Old Testament would occur. And Mark starts his gospel right from the beginning by telling us, let me give you some of the great news that what was promised is now here. That's what verses 2 and 3 are referencing. Now, at first glance, the quotations from verses 2 and 3 seem to serve merely as Prophecies saying it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one who was foretold in the Old Testament. Now, verses 2 and 3 are that, but they are much more than that. And so I want to try to do a deep dive here for a couple of minutes and give you a little more information that might be of interest and of help. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the first century, when some, someone named John came 
declaring that folks ought to travel into the wilderness to get baptized. The Old Testament foretold that He would come, but that's not all these quotes are saying. In fact, their main function, verses 2 and 3, is to shed light on the way in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you're familiar with it, think back with me way, way, way earlier in the story to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus. And remember what that story is about. God's people had found themselves living under slavery in Egypt, and God brought about their rescue through somebody named Moses. And their exodus was literally their departure out of the land of Egypt and then up through the wilderness, the Sinai wilderness, toward what today we would call the land of Israel. In Exodus 23, verse 20, God promised to send a messenger. Now, if you'll look, you'll see that same word in verse 2. God promised to send a messenger before His people to guard and protect them as they made their way toward the promised land. This was a promise of great comfort to them, that while they journeyed perhaps in fear and in struggle through the Red Sea into the wilderness toward the place that God had promised for them, that God would have a messenger for them. Now, centuries later, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases of disobedience later, long after they'd lived in that land for many, many years and been kicked out and then welcomed back in and then kicked out again, God told them, that is the Israelites, through another messenger. This one's found in the book of Malachi. God told him this, Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, that verse is the verse that became the prophetic declaration that John the Baptist would come. But it has its echoes all the way back in Exodus chapter 23. Malachi is saying, that God would send a messenger before He Himself would come. And this messenger would bring good news. And yet, this good news will simultaneously warn and comfort at the same time. You see, the Exodus messenger only brought good news. The Malachi messenger brought both good news and warning, and John the Baptist would come and do the same thing. You see, the the hope-filled promise given in Exodus became a scathing warning in Malachi 3 that anyone who refuses to listen to God's messengers would meet his discipline, his wrath. And so Mark takes up that theme in verse 2, and then he combines it in the second half of verse 2 by quoting from another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, 
about John the Baptist, saying that John the Baptist is the messenger who would come crying out in the wilderness. And that section in Isaiah is about promising a future rescue of God's people in which God would meet all our deepest needs forever. Now, the point in all of this is that the gospel is the truth of Israel's long-desired rescue. Their rescue not merely out of slavery in Egypt, as bad as that is, but their rescue out of slavery to sin and their deliverance into the perfect harmony with God that we all long for. But if people fail to respond, then the good news becomes a damning curse. Mark says all of that in the first paragraph of his gospel because he wants us to hear right from the very beginning. What I'm going to tell you in the next 16 chapters is the most important thing you could ever hear because it is the message if you will receive this one, Jesus Christ, you can be right with God and you will have a eternal promise, a promised land, a place with Him among His people that can never be taken. But if you refuse this messenger, there is no other help for your greatest need. Friend, no, make, make no mistake about it. The way out of alienation from God is to listen and respond to his offers of grace. And that's all that the gospel of Mark is. It's the good news of the gospel of grace offered in Christ, foretold all throughout the Old Testament. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then you have the rest of your life to learn it. Don't feel discouraged by that. But if you do, if you are familiar with it, then Hear the wonder that those first century hearers who knew their Old Testament would have felt. The moment their parents, their grandparents, their great-great-great-grandparents, and all the way back for thousands of years, the moment they longed for, Mark is declaring, is now here. We must submit to Jesus or we'll eventually find that the grace giver, when he returns, is also the judgment exactor. You can think of it this way. Imagine you're in a Harkins theater and someone in the back yells, flee, there's a fire. That singular message both saves those who respond and damns those who ignore it. The gospel does the same thing. So it is with these prophecies about John, about Jesus, and many other people we'll learn about as we work our way through Mark. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, don't treat Mark's account lightly. He's trying to tell us right from the very beginning, sit up, pay attention. This is the most important thing you could ever hear. Heaven and hell, life and death, salvation and judgment are all at stake. There is a way out of judgment from God, a judgment everyone deserves. 
It's by responding to God's offer of grace. Now, this good news of ultimate deliverance of God's people, we're told first, is foretold by the Old Testament. There's no surprise. Second, we're told that it's anticipated by John the Baptist. If you let your eyes glance back over those verses 4 through 8, you'll see they beautifully describe the ministry of somebody called John the Baptist. Growing up, I was in one particular church where a lot of people believed that John the Baptist was the first Baptist and that ever since then there's been Baptist churches. And that is not true, all right? He's called the Baptist because he, he, he baptized people. He most definitely was not a Southern Baptist, all right? Now, some 400 years after the prophecy in Malachi that a messenger would come, the messenger came. John the Baptist came exploding on the scene. Now, it's hard for us to imagine this, but God had not spoken any new, authoritative, helpful, comforting word in 400 years. And in that setting, showed up somebody dressed like Elijah, preaching a message, get ready, Jesus is coming. And then he baptized anyone who would repent of their sins in the Jordan to signify their cleansing from sin and their turning to God. The fact that John preached in the wilderness is highly significant. Maybe you noticed that. That word is repeated over and over and over in this passage. Again, this points us back to the Old Testament. Back in Exodus, God led His people miraculously through the Red Sea and then into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, through Moses' leadership, God constituted them as God's people. He gave them His good word. He taught them how to live. And yet they rebelled against Him. And thus... The fresh blessing of the wilderness out of Egypt became a curse of judgment as they had to wander for 40 years until all those who rebelled passed away and the next generation of people rose up and God took them into the promised land. By preaching in the wilderness, in the desert outside the major city of Jerusalem, John is in a sense reenacting the Exodus story. He's saying, you're getting another chance. Come out in the wilderness, pass through the waters, and then don't make the same mistake your ancestors made. This time, listen to God. Church, understand this. We could put it this way. The wilderness is a place of deprivation, of danger, of attack, of punishment, but it's also the place where God delivers people. And he provides for them, and he reveals himself to them. That's clear throughout the Bible. I think in some sense, there is some way in which today we are having a kind of wilderness experience. 
Now, maybe you personally aren't, but the globe is quaking with difficulty, unusually intense difficulty. These are days overrun with conflict and overflowing with uncertainty. The temptation to retreat to our apartments, our condos, our homes, and our dorms, and just live hiding in online entertainment is huge. Will this wilderness ever end? Well, the gospel promises that it eventually will. Whether the rest of our days are very similar to the last two years or not, there will come a day when no testing is ever needed, no mask is ever asked for, where no one ever is ill, where there is no uncertainty, where peace prevails. Doesn't that sound wonderful? The good news of the ultimate deliverance of God's people is foretold by the Old Testament. And then as John the Baptist came, it's anticipated by him. It's, he's saying, yes, God hasn't spoken in 400 years, and He is now, but don't look to me, look to Jesus. Because this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The last three paragraphs of our passage are all about Jesus. There's Jesus in His baptism in the wilderness, there's Jesus in His temptations in the wilderness, and then there's Jesus coming out of the wilderness into the cities to preach the good news. So very quickly, consider each of those with me. Jesus first in His baptism, verses 9 through 11. This is often a confusing issue to people because if Jesus was sinless and He needed no repentance, then why did He get baptized? Well, although Jesus never sinned and needed no cleansing, He went out to hear John preach and then to be baptized by Him in the Jordan River. Just like the nation of Israel had gone through the waters of the Red Sea and then met their temptations in the wilderness and failed to obey, Jesus would pass through the waters, go into the wilderness, and then not fail to obey. You see, Jesus perfectly his entire life listened to his Father's Word, and followed His Father's Word. He did, in other words, what Israel failed to do. And, in no way incidentally, Christian, He did what you have failed to do. That's why you can come to know God through Jesus Christ, because He both meets the obedience required and takes the punishment deserved. Now, before we look at Jesus' temptations, just as a quick aside, don't miss that in this simple paragraph about Jesus' baptism, we have one of the only places in the whole Bible where each member of the Trinity are present in the same moment. This is one of the crucial texts in all of Scripture for understanding that 
God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. If you're ever talking to a Mormon or a Muslim, this would be a great text to know that you can turn to. Because in the text, we see God the Father speaking affirmation over God the Son and God the Spirit coming down and resting on Jesus. While Israel had failed to trust God and resist attack and temptation in the wilderness, Jesus does not. Now, He remains faithful in the wilderness. And therefore, we're being told by Mark that Jesus brought about a new wilderness beginning. A, a second exodus, an ultimate rescue of God's people out of the wilderness of sin and into the true and better promised land of salvation, of being right with God, not spatially on a, on a particular piece of land, but spiritually in something that can never be taken away. You see, when God the Father looked on Jesus and said, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased, He's confirming that Jesus is the Spirit-anointed servant of Isaiah's prophecies of deliverance. He is the one anticipated on every page of your Bible. He's the Messiah from the line of David who would come and sit on the throne and rule and reign over God's kingdom, giving each of us who know Him a people to belong to, a king to follow, a savior to enjoy, a Lord to follow, a friend to hear. Which brings us to the last two verses, well worth reading again. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Church, the rule and reign of God, His kingdom, has come in Jesus Christ. If you want out of the wilderness, if you want into a position of spiritual safety and protection and provision and bounty. If you want access to God that remains forever, all of these are available through the gospel of Jesus Christ. To have them, you must respond to the good news that Jesus is the rescuer. Now, the simple response that John calls for is, we might say, a coin. Repent and believe. They are two sides of the same coin. They always go together. You can never have one in a genuine way and not have the other. To repent is to recognize, God, I have gone my own way instead of yours. And yes, other people have helped me along that path, but I have done that. And God, I see that now and I repent. I turn and I want to go the other way. 
And I realize that I don't have the strength to do that. Because just like the Israelites couldn't rescue themselves out of slavery in Egypt, I can't rescue myself out of slavery to sin. And so, God, I believe the other side of the coin. I believe that one came who accomplished that for me, namely Jesus. That Jesus obeyed. And that because he obeyed, he was then an acceptable substitute who died to take the penalty for sin. And because he's the Son of God, he then rose again on the third day, imparting life, forgiveness, health, hope to all who turn from sin and trust in him. Friend, if you've never responded to that gospel message, perhaps the reason you're here today is to do just that. And if you have already responded to that message, what you're going to find throughout the book of Mark this year is that faith and repentance are not one-time acts. It's not as though you turn from sin and believe in the gospel the, the moment you're converted and become a follower of God, and then you don't need it anymore. No, those are, those are lifestyles. Lifestyles in which every time we come to see who Jesus is more closely, then we get some awareness of the ways in which we still are holding on to our old way of life. And so that provides new occasion to repent of ongoing sin and to confess renewed belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, friend, I would just ask if you're already a follower of Jesus, is, the, is your awareness of the gospel, of the cross, of grace, of mercy, more powerful and persistent than it was a year ago? If not, would you ask God to do a fresh work in your life? Because over time, our awareness of our sin and our, the grandeur of Christ, that, that sense of the greatness of what Jesus has done ought to be growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I pray for those of us who already know Jesus that that's what would happen. As we begin or go back again to a lifestyle of faith and repentance. It's going to be a great year in the gospel of Mark. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Before I offer a prayer for all of us, would you take a moment and respond to the Lord yourself? Father, we are a people weary of bad news. Bad news abounds. 
So we praise you and thank you today for good news, the best news, the news that there is a gracious, forgiving God who reconciles people to himself in Christ, and that Jesus has in fact come. And as we'll learn through the Gospel of Mark, he will come again. Pray this morning that the effect of hearing Mark 1, 1 through 15 would be life-changing. That as we hear and apply the good news, that God, like you changed John Mark, you would change each of us. We pray that we would be doers, not merely hearers only. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.